Good evening. Welcome to BIPAC News on the Jewish TV channel. I'm Laura Kessler. In January, we spoke to Dr. Jessica Imami about her book on cyber punishment, social media victimization, and the status of Iranian feminists resisting mandatory dress code laws. Today she joins us as our official Iranian analyst, and there's a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show, Jessica, and welcome to the team. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. There sure is a lot to talk about. First, can you break down for our listeners exactly what the connection is between the war in Israel and Iran, and also what are all the different Iranian-sponsored paramilitary groups, and how are they being used, or could they potentially be used if things escalate? Well, to oversimplify a little, but be truthful at the same time, all of what you're seeing now being hurled at Israel is Iran-sponsored, using Arab proxies for different military groups. But they're all trained and backed financially, militarily, emotionally, spiritually by Iran. And spiritually, I use in quotes because um, it's a very evil kind of a philosophy of terror and destruction that they're propagating. So we have Hamas. Hamas is a movement that is a Sunni movement, an Arabic movement. However, they have been bankrolled by Iran, which is a Shia country, and fully supported by them since their birth in 1989. What you are seeing now, which is a war between Hamas and Israel, was planned over a period of years by Iran. Iran provided training, as a Wall Street Journal article recently discovered and printed. They trained Hamas's people in September, so just a month before. And I'm talking, for example, they taught them how to paraglide over that border. They did years of surveillance and troubleshooting and trying to creatively get around Israel's increasingly lax defenses around the southern border. So we have Hamas. There's also Islamic Jihad, which works in the West Bank as well. Iran bankrolls them. And then over the border, there's Hezbollah, which is a much larger militant movement that was founded by Iranian, and it's a Shia movement. So what I'm thinking about now is we have been three weeks nonstop fighting against Hamas, if you look at Israel, bombarding very strategic areas. And there's still enough rockets that are being lobbed to the point where one hit Tel Aviv yesterday. There's got to be an enormous wealth of weaponry hiding in there. Of course, at the expense of the Gazans, because the money that Hamas receives from other places is supposed to go to humanitarian things like education, medicine, and food. I mean, we know the hostages are actually getting, they, they plan food for the hostages and themselves down there while their own people are getting nothing. I've heard that as well. Tel Aviv's been hit many times today. Yes, Tel Aviv has been hit by Hamas and I believe also by Hezbollah. But what we don't hear about so much is last week, a cruise missile came from the Houthi area of Yemen, which is a considerable distance farther than Israel's neighbors. It was much stronger than expected, and I think it is what elicited the United States to send more 
troops and another ship into that area. All of these are bankrolled by Iran. And what's more disturbing is that there's not enough being done by the West and especially the United States to look at this as one full picture rather than a bunch of disparate battles, which is how they framed it. For example, when they bombed um, two depots two nights ago, the United States bombed two depots of guns and ammo in Syria that they said was was belonged to the IRGC. It's sort of in the Syrian no man's mm-hmm. land where ISIS used to be. But they made it very clear, you know, they didn't coordinate with the Israelis, and it has nothing to do with what's going on in Israel. The framing right. of this is completely incorrect, and all it does for us is to lose time against Iran's Islamic Republic, which actually is also a tyranny, a tyrannical power to its own people. It just loses time before they become nuclear. And now, as we can see, they have missile Mm -hmm. capabilities as well. And I'm not seeing enough of, you know, enough of a clamor to get onto the snapbacks via the United Nations. And the Biden administration has been fighting the Congress on sort of having a soft approach towards Iran, which we can get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do want to get into that. But I want to zoom out first and talk a little bit about the big picture of the type of relationship Iran has in the Arab world. It seems like a lot of other Arab nations despise them, yet are fearful of them. And, I mean, isn't this really more about an internal Arab war in some ways? And also, you mentioned the Houthis. I thought it was so wonderful to see that the Saudis um, shot down one of those missiles that were targeting Israel. And so, do you think we'll see more courageous advocacy for Israel from within the Muslim world? Isn't that the other proxy war going on? In some ways, yes. And when we say proxy wars, it's a very mixed picture. For example, there is uh, an infranational, and I mean surpassing all of the nations or all of the states, the political states, Jordan, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey. Overlooking all of that is is being Muslim, and being Muslim is now divided into Shia and Sunni. And although the Shia are a minority within the entire uh, Muslim world, they have earned a lot of negative power because of the Iranian government. Iran is the only country that's majority Shia, which is like 95% Shia, and its government claims to be Iranian, but in fact they are aiming at uh, making their own, what I would deem, a Shia caliphate. They, they are looking at the world that way. And I don't think enough world powers are recognizing this, or if they're recognizing it, they're not talking about it. So that's one battle. Mm-hmm. Well, the Muslim world, and I mean the Muslim world uh, more generally, including people who are moderate, which most Muslims are moderate, they look at it, they look down on it. But the problems that we're having in all of the countries in the Arab world is that there, is, there are struggles going on between organized Islamist groups versus what mm-hmm. I want to call benev- benevolent dictatorships. Um, so let's mm-hmm. say al-Sisi in Egypt is helping to maintain order. Does he have to do it with an iron fist? Yes. 
What is the alternative? Well, we only have to look back a little while, a little ways back to after the Arab Spring when the Muslim Brotherhood was running Egypt, where it was extremely authoritarian to the point where the people toppled that government again. So it's like the best of bad choices. And what I'm seeing now in the Arab world, for example, with the normalization with Saudi Arabia, all of these state governments that really value being a nation state, being in the community of nations, realize that they are fighting a battle against Islamism and they're trying to get ahead of it. And I view the normalization efforts of Israel and also the Abraham Accords, I view that as walking more in that direction, walking in the direction of getting peace and commerce moving within that region and to the point where people feel that Islamism is not a workable solution, it's an anachronism. So they have very difficult choices to make within the Arab world. But unfortunately, Iran has enormous resources, beginning with its oil. They don't do enough for their own people, and they tend to send a lot of their funds into the Middle East for war and nurturing the terrible propaganda and mindset and arms that go against most of the Arab world and and Israel. Most people seem to think that this was designed to stop the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which is why them shooting down that missile, I think, is just so important. What are your thoughts on all of that? And just really simplifying, because it's so hard for people to get the minutia. It's very hard looking in. I think when we look at the Middle East, it's very difficult to apply the liberal, um, conservative uh, spectrum on on that. There there are no, let's put it this way, there are no liberals over there. But within Iran, (laughs) after the Saddam uh, government was deposed, Saddam was a secular Sunni living in a country where 60% of the people are Shia. And he was really, really oppressing them. He displaced the Shia into really difficult places to live, uh, replaced the nicer places with Sunni minorities, um, was very discriminatory towards them. So... After uh, he was deposed, there became an opportunity within the Iraqi government that was recreated after that um, to have political parties be active. Unfortunately, uh, one of the side effects of that was that Iran had regained its access to Iraq for many years especially after the bloody Iraq war. And even before that, it was very difficult for any Iranians to gain access to Iraq. And actually for the clergy, this was very important because some major pilgrimage sites are over there. But what it did was it increased the access, political and paramilitary access of the Iranian government to Iraq to the point where they are now active in the parliament with their own puppets that they put in there. And also, they have attacked U.S. facilities within Iraq. As a matter of fact, that's what got 
Dasem Soleimani killed, his paramilitary, the IRGC, who until very recently were actually are still on the terrorist list in the United States. They attacked the U.S. Embassy and President Trump got retaliated by eliminating Ghassan Soleimani. So Iraq is a microcosm of a lot of these other Arab countries where Iran is interfering very, very intrusively, I might add. Um, Now, within their own party politics, I think it's healthy for them to have differences. There are also Kurds in the Iraqi parliament, but you can't really have political competition and civil society until you have a security situation underhand, you know, on, under your belt, stabilized. So again, there in, in Iraq, we're seeing a picture where, yes, it is good now that the Shia are less oppressed, but unfortunately, we're seeing incursions by Iran into Iraq to a degree that is intolerable for world security and especially for Israel. I'll give you, um, sometimes people ask me, you know, what is a worst-case scenario? Right now, Iran is banking on this sort of war of attrition. It's doing something where it's hitting everywhere at the same time, knowing that that is going to put the U.S. under situation of endless war, which the population is very fatigued by. We're in places, we don't know the end game, and we're, it's like swatting flies, except that these flies are killing people. So you have all of these things going on at the same time. Now, what's going to happen is the worst-case scenario is that Iran becomes a nuclear power, which it's very close to being if it isn't already, and this situation becomes permanent. Like For the rest of the duration of that government, we have a situation where Iran bankrolls countries in the Middle East until it can achieve its goal of eliminating Israel and expelling the United States from the Middle East. Um, That is why this nuclear threshold and the missile capabilities should really be taken much more seriously than they have been until now, at least in the public sphere. Um, But I'm not hearing enough from our government about that. American leadership has been sending mixed messages for years multiple presidential administration going back to President Obama, especially whom many now hold responsible for our current situation. But, I mean, what is our policy? And why are we screwing this up? Some people think that Israel should just nuke Iran, but it's not that simple. Uh, What is the best scenario for, for ending this? Well, it really isn't that simple because there is a question of who will... Who will take charge, let's say, if the Islamic Republic is deposed? Now, there is a big ray of light, and that ray of light is that the Iranian people, especially the people that are under 30 years old, are sick to death of their government. And we have seen repeated uprisings in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2023. And with each uprising, the government became more and more uh, vicious against its own people. So there's a large population of very young people willing and trying to change Iran, their government in Iran from within. The United States needs to help those people 
They need to return to a policy that was active under the Trump administration called maximum support. Maximum support for the Iranian people and maximum pressure. So maximum pressure was maximum economic and the threat of military pressure on Iran, on the Islamic Republic government. Um, This is the way, I think, that we can signal to Iran that we are in their corner. Right now, everything the United States government is doing telegraphs to the Iranian people that basically the West is not backing you. Even though you stand for the same values we do, you want women Mm -hmm. to have more freedom and power. You want a government that provides for its own people, that has a place in the community of nations that stops sponsoring terrorism. Why are we telegraphing to those people on the ground in Iran that we don't support those values? I think we do support those values. And in terms of leadership, the only leader who has stepped up to the plate who has any legitimacy whatsoever is the Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi. Mm -hmm. There have been numerous polls done within Iran and he has always gotten the top spot for who Iranian people would prefer. Uh, one of the good things about Reza Pahlavi is that he has worked, he has studied extensively under U.S. Um, scholars of political science who have backed um, nonviolent struggle and resistance. For example, he was a protege of Gene Sharp, knew him personally. And when Gene Sharp died, Gene Sharp was the author of How Nonviolence Works and Why Does It Work. Um, the biggest movements that have brought down dictators have been nonviolent. Gandhi, you have um, Martin Luther King. Uh, Reza Pahlavi has all those qualities and believes that that is the way that they're going to get rid of the dictatorship within Iran. Um, and don't mistake the word nonviolent for uh, non-powerful. It's very powerful, especially when there is resistance going on. So I think mm-hmm. between the popularity and what he stands for, as well as the historic institution of the monarchy being the only institution that has ever stood up to the clerical establishment, which is um, sort of not unlike a, a Vatican, the Shia establishment of clerics is very powerful in Iran. And the only institution that has historically had the resources and the power to harness them has been, in the past, the monarchy. Um, I think for today's, uh, for today, in our community of democracies, we are looking at a constitutional monarchy. And he's never said anything differently than that. But a return to a constitutional monarchy would be much more favorable than um, you know, just saying simplistic solutions if we're looking for an alternative. That would be much better, absolutely, for them. And, you know, when we look at this current era of uprising throughout the entire Middle East, how is it similar or different from the Arab Spring back in 2010 and 2011? Do you think it's manageable or getting out of hand? So I look at the Arab Spring as a as a movement that was not unlike what what happened uh, in Iran in 2023 with the Mahsa Amini movement. It was a movement of young people 
who are thirsting for political freedom. And I think a lot of them were um, wrongly uh, inspired by President Obama. Um, They looked at him as a symbol for that kind of freedom. You know, they looked at him, they would think of Martin Luther King, for example. So the whole world, including the Iranian people, thought, oh, this is a good time to do an uprising. Well, that was not at all the foreign policy that Barack Obama followed or was indoctrinated in or believed in. What he had actually conceived with um, the assistance of a Harvard scholar named Robert Malley was the idea that if you strengthen and balance the uh, power between the Shia and the Sunni, all will be well in the you know, to simplify it, all will be well within the power of balance in the Middle East. So they developed a sort of permissive attitude of, you know, getting along with the Islamic Republic of Iran and consequently strengthening it, sending a lot of money to the Islamic Republic of Iran. More recently, President Biden has continued that policy and even paid $6 billion for six prisoners, for five prisoners. Um, Okay, so the prisoners are just a symbol. This was a way to prelude that, hey, we're going to just get along because I believe in this philosophy. So when the people were up doing the uprising in the Arab Spring, they were thinking more along enlightenment lines of, you know, having a parliament, having elections, having freedom of expression, um, and mm-hmm. none of that happens because within nanoseconds, especially in Egypt, which is such a culturally uh, powerful and politically powerful country and symbol for the Middle East, within nanoseconds, the Muslim Brotherhood, who had been armed and ready for anything like this for decades, swooped in and took over the parliamentary apparatus. Mohammed Morsi became their uh, president, and then a very strict dictatorship took place. This was, I think, in 2010. So that jaded people from the idea of Arab Spring, you know, um, and I mean the average person on the street, what you're seeing now today is not an Arab Spring. You are seeing um, different, disparate uh, groups that are anti-Israel and anti-Semitic and Islamist. And in the West, people have been indoctrinated in not knowing the difference between um, being anti-colonial and truly anti-Semitic. Like, uh, this is stunning to me that after a massacre by a terrorist group, people educated in Western universities are walking in the street and proudly declaring that they, that uh, even, they've even said Hamas is a resistance group and they're admirable. What you're seeing now is not an Arab Spring. It is, a, but it is a dangerous uprising. And I think we do need to look at, you know, what are we teaching our own young people? And why mm-hmm. don't we take Iran's occupying government more seriously? I like to call it the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Islamic Republic occupying Iran, because 
increasingly they have the hallmarks of an ISIS. They have the hallmarks of an ISIS, except that they're already are in charge of a nation state that's very large and has a lot of resources. And they've always looked at have, being in charge of Iran in that way. But isn't that handy? We can print money. We can um, be a part of Interpol. We can send our foreign minister to the UN while we're throwing rockets from the Gaza Strip to civilians mm-hmm. in Israel. It's it's uh, the best of all worlds for them, you know. I think you, you make such an you make such an important point with the distinction between the Arab Spring, which many people saw as positive, and this, which is not that. It's just pure hate and the confusion among the intelligentsia in, on our college campuses is beyond depressing. Um, as we speak, there are massive, vicious protests going on in London, Brooklyn, and all around the world calling to globalize the Intifada. And, you know, if, if this comes to fruition, if these tensions continue to grow worldwide, what sort of counterterrorism can the West use to curb the malign influence of all these state sponsors of terror? Because we have some of them here too. You know, the Islamic Republic, the Muslim Brotherhood, Al Qaeda. Like, I've I've been told uh, by reliable sources that even ISIS has themselves in North America. What can Americans, Europeans, in the diaspora do to stop this ideological war from spreading culturally and literally? The biggest thing that the United States can do, that the Arab world has been trying to do, is to get rid of the Islamic Republic of Iran. They are the head of the Hydra. Why? Because they have enormous resources that they're constantly feeding. So, for example, Iran held a repeating Holocaust denial conference where they were proudly sponsoring Nazi websites and Nazi philosophy about, you know, how Hitler was really smart and prescient and also mixing it with older Islamic anti-Judaism. So they held these like Holocaust denial cartoon conferences as an example. It is not unforeseen that they are supporting some of the Palestine groups on campuses with the monies being washed, laundered through different Arab countries unbeknownst to the governments. Um, For example, there was an operation where, I forget the name of the operation now, but basically they were saying that the United States sends their police to be trained in Israel that the police are learning vicious tactics and bring it back to the United States. This this campaign yeah, that they have started... You're talking about the, the deadly exchange. Deadly exchange, that's about. it. Yeah. Deadly exchange yeah. was conceived at the Second New Horizon Conference in Iran, which is an anti-Semitic conference. Let me, let me just conference. jump in here. I want to just give some yeah. context to our listeners. During the Black Lives Matter, some of the riots with George Floyd, you saw a lot of comparisons between George Floyd and the Palestinians. And, you know, this is very common. They, they often culturally appropriate things to build sympathies. And one of the things with this deadly exchange, I'll let you explain the bulk of it, but 
you know, they've tied this into Ferguson. They've tied this into basically somehow it's incredible that they've pulled this off, but somehow they blame Israelis and the IDF for Ferguson, for any sort of perceived violence against black men happening in Missouri or anywhere. So I'll let you pick it up from there, Jessica. Sure. Well, unfortunately, when it comes to something like deadly exchange, you know, the Iranian government knows full well and has a panoply of very savvy um, scholars of intersectionality and race relations. So they take the, um, they apply the lens of race onto these fights that are going on in the Middle East. And so they use the idea of intersectionality. Israel is white. Um, it's an oppressor. The U.S. is white. It's an oppressor. And anybody in the United States who comments about this situation who's not white is culturally appropriating the conversation, so they're not allowed to say anything that's valid. Um, that's how they shut people up. We're afraid to speak because we're afraid of being called racist. Um, which is crazy because half of Jews, especially in Israel, are Mizrahi, which is which is not white. Well, of course. So it, it, yeah. Well, when it comes it. to being Jewish, race is a non-entity. You know, if what I mean is a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Mm-hmm. We have black mm-hmm. Jews, we have white Jews, we have Chinese Jews, we have Indian Jews. They're all Jews. They're all equal to one another in terms of dignity and, and value, you know, in the Jewish religion. That's how we view it. So what they're trying to do with the Ferguson situation is tear Jewish, the Jewish world apart and disempower it. Um, but anyway, what we can do in the United States is to target the Iranian cultural, financial, military, and economic, um, the Islamic Republic's power because they are the one that's bankrolling it. The money gets laundered and then it reaches the target so all of a sudden you look like in California or Minnesota, there's all these like people popping up doing all these activities. Somehow they end up near us in our backyard. And mm-hmm. when the time is right, they're all clamoring all at the same time. And that's what's happening now. The other thing that they do is they fund university Middle East centers. My, uh, I am a fellow of the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, and uh, Dr. Charles Asher Small, who's the head of that organization, has done some great studies showing that there are a lot of undeclared and sort of hidden funds that go to Middle East study centers within United States universities. They're supposed to be declared through the State Department, but he found in his work with a colleague uh, and there's a report out about this, that there is so much money that was undeclared that came forth, came to light during the Trump administration. And that's when they wrote the mm-hmm. report. So people who are concerned about this, sending their children or if they're an alumnus, they need to ask questions. You know, 
Who's funding this Middle East Center, Middle East Studies Center? Where is that money coming from? You know, and um, that is another place where these attitudes get funded, um, these, where people can get indoctrinated. Always follow the money. And, you know, it's good to see people speaking out against some of these chapters of Students for Justice in Palestine, uh, which, I mean, it's proven. Anywhere there is a chapter for Students for Justice in Palestine, there's been a 200% increase of anti-Semitism. Correlation and causation go together in this case. And I would refer our listeners to um, my previous interviews with uh, Tammy Rossman Benjamin and also Naomi Friedman that really go into detail in these campus groups and their funding, and also um, with Pastor Dumasani Washington. That you know there are leaders, there are non-Jewish leaders in in the Black Church who are working very hard to fight the indoctrination of their youth because really all of our youth, you know, Black and white, are being used by this evil Iranian regime to bring down things, and they exploit, going all the way back to Farrakhan and Nation of Islam, you know, they exploit disaffected black youth, probably the worst. But, you know, by, you know, oh, look, there's somebody with brown skin just like me, as if it was that simple, and it's not. So it's very important to see how all of this goes together. Um, and, you know, and that um, also ties in. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um one of the scholars who actually did a lot of the statistical footwork for finding this correlation with the SJPs is Dr. Eyal Feinberg, who's the director of anti-Semitism program at uh, Graz College. So, um, yes, there's a lot of good work being done. Uh, the message is not pretty, but we need to know these things. Now, there is a second thing that people can do, which is to pressure your representative and your executive government. So in other words, the Biden administration and your congressional representatives to take a stance against the Islamic Republic of Iran that is adversarial um, to put a stop to what is going on around this country. Um, even though, you know, you look at the surface, you don't see the connections. We, you and I, in this half hour mapped out just some of the connections. And I'm happy to do this again in a little yeah. while, as this, I think this struggle between Israel and Gaza, uh, Hamas, is going to be lengthier than we think. Um, oh, I, I think only it's going to be like politics. Ukraine, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I was dismayed to see that the Biden administration was already trying to put the brakes on Israel from protecting itself less than a week after President Biden said, we're completely 100% with Israel. But wait, don't, you know, uh, these uh, mixed messages are not helpful. And also the idea that what's going on at the hands of the Islamic Republic into the Middle East is completely unrelated. Framing it unrelated to what's going on in Israel Mm -hmm. is not helpful. So people... I see that as politics... Yes, we must yeah, I, contact I see that, our politicians. Yeah, I, I see. I see the wishy-washiness. I mean, for a lot of things, but I see it as politics and pandering to his own base. Which I, I, I mean, I'm seeing a pleasant split actually, where a lot of a lot of Democrats 
who have been way too silent are speaking up now in some very positive ways, you know, and, and you're seeing that wedge happen between the pro-Israel and anti-Israel people. Finally, we've kind of been waiting Fine. for that. Yes. Um, but I also think, and, and this is maybe for a future uh, time, but I also think it's part of the bigger Russia and China situation with Ukraine. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. There's multiple proxy wars here of different kinds. And, you know, we, we, we could talk about Putin almost for a whole hour. Uh, there's a lot of fingerprints on this that yeah. is really in so, so many, I mean, in so many ways. I mean, I want to make clear, I have, I have sympathy for the innocent uh, Palestinian people who have been played by their own leaders who have used them as pawns. Um, and so there are peace-loving people in a lot of places, including unexpected places, but there are many different dimensions of, of 12-dimensional chess going on that in yeah. many cases have almost, almost nothing to do with Israel or Gaza. But you, um, you know that, what, that's though? what makes it so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also seeing a lot of progressive Israelis uh, very disheartened and, you know, really having a, a personal reckoning with themselves in public. I'm seeing that a lot mm-hmm. on social media and talking to people. Apologies. Where yeah. I think they're just confused. You know, you get confused before you get clear again. They had always mm-hmm. thought that mm-hmm. progressivism would completely save the Jew. That's what they thought. Yeah. And, but, but for years, others have been saying, you know, no, this is going in the wrong direction. And um, now many of those Jews who are seeing their fellow progressives going out in the street celebrating Hamas are just appalled. Oh, yeah. So what will happen to them is, you know, they will either revise their own idea of progressivism or they will become more center or even conservative. That happens. Um, It will be Mm -hmm. interesting to see. But we always thrive on a clear message, we being the human being. I think it's very useful to look at the world right now in a way that Marsha Black, Senator Marsha Blackburn did a few weeks ago where she called Russia, China, and Iran, and let's say North Korea, the new axis of evil. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is what is going on. They support one another, and then you have Turkey who's playing both sides. It's a member of NATO, but Erdogan just, (laughs) declared that Hamas are fighters. They are honorable fighters, not a terrorist group. So there is a new axis of evil. We need to open our eyes and look at the world adversarially in that way, the way Samuel Huntington did with the clash of civilizations. Otherwise, we're just sitting ducks. Mm -hmm. And I I appreciate what you said about the people who are, are kind of waking up and feeling disheartened. And I, I have seen very uh, very eloquent public statements they've made that are essentially apologies. And I feel for how hard that is for them. I think many of us went through different levels of sort of having those utopian dreams shattered. You know, last time we spoke, we both lamented that Western feminists were not particularly supporting their sisters in Iran who were rebelling openly against the mandatory hijab. I I can't let you go without just asking you what are your thoughts on the reaction of some of the Western feminists 
who are literally condoning rape as a form of Palestinian resistance. Well, I mean, this is, again, part and parcel of the idea that, you know, it's okay if, if it's being done in the service of something I believe in versus, you know, do we have a universal standard for human beings, for safety of human beings and their dignity? It's the same indoctrination uh, that causes a woman, I saw on social media protesting in the United States, holding a sign that said, we can't wait for the caliphate. That person has never lived under anything approaching a religious government. And I don't wish it on her. I, I mean, I have no I, words. It, it, it's beyond. I saw, I want to say funny, quote unquote, funny meme saying that it would be a great reality show to send some of these people to these countries they seem to like so much and, and see how they do for three months. <laughs> I don't think it would I mean, work out. I, I don't like to wish that on people, but when it gets to a point where they're saying we can't wait for the caliphate, it means they were not looking or listening to what ISIS was doing in this world. You know, it's, it's disingenuous. They're not defending the Uyghur Muslims in China. They're not defending um, the Palestinians up in Syria. They're, you know, it, it's, it's very, yes. very specific. It, these are, very it's, it's specific. like they've been programmed. And it, it's just, it's frightening. It's very frightening. Jessica, before I let you go, do you have any good news for us? Yes, I do have good news. There is an act in Congress called the Masa Act, uh, named after Masa Amini, the woman who was murdered by the morality police in Iran. This act is going through Congress, and basically it sanctions the, the highest echelons of the Islamic Republic government. It was passed in the House, and now we're looking for more co-sponsors in the Senate. So call your senator. If this act comes to fruition, it will greatly curb the ability of the Biden administration to you know, basically just make their own deal with Iran without informing Congress, which is what they've been doing up to now. So call your senator. Let's get the Masa Act into a law and let's weaken the Islamic Republic in order to keep Israel and the rest of the world safe. That's good. That's good. And for our listeners, um, on our website at jewishtvchannel.com slash bipact, you can find a section where you can type in your zip code if you're in North America and find out the way to contact yeah, your representatives directly. And even if you're not in the U.S., uh, you can still write to them and urge them as somebody who has, is concerned. So Jessica and Mommy, thank you for being with us today. And welcome to the team. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Talk soon. That's it for this edition of BIPAC News on the Jewish TV channel. Check out our brand new podcast available for BIPAC Radio on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter and YouTube channel. Also catch me on my show Talking Point, where I'll be interviewing Hen Nazig this week. You won't want to miss that. For Jewish TV channel and BIPAC News, I'm Laura Kessler. Stay safe.